In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I suspect that at least some of you have spent time over the past 10 days or so watching the newest season of the nostalgic Netflix series, Stranger Things, like my wife and I did. The show's music and costumes take its viewers back to the 80s in the Midwest, a time that somehow feels too recent to many of us to feel retro, and inserts them into the relationship between four adolescent boys who try to fight off evil in an attempt to save the world. No spoilers, I promise, if you haven't seen it. Aside from the evocative 80s tropes, the platonic relationships between these young boys are a major draw of the show. This is true especially in the first season, where there's a special spirit of innocence that permeates the entire thing. The childhood relationships, yes, but especially these first-time actors yet unspoiled by the vicious excesses of Hollywood and life in it. In fact, after finishing the third season in what was, admittedly, an embarrassingly short amount of time, I came across an interview online with one of the young actors, Gaten Matarazzo, who plays Dustin in the series, the curly-haired, toothless boy who is innocent, witty, and very charming. The interviewer, in a nonchalant way, asked this young 16-year-old actor whether and when he anticipated having his period of rebellion. The actor, to his credit, said he didn't really anticipate having a rebellious stage, perhaps to the interviewer's dismay for headline fodder. The assumption was that the cheery and at least apparently innocent boy would grow up like the rest of his Hollywood actor peers and have a time when we see him in the news having done God knows what and look back longingly on the time when he was Dustin in Stranger Things. We can think of countless childhood stars who have started out like Matarazzo only to end up in prison for a series of bad decisions, who have undergone a transformation for the worst in moving from adolescence to adulthood in show business. Our texts this morning present to us several pictures of persons who face the prospect of similar transformations, transformations either for the better or for the worse. They show us women and men who face the decision of whether to live lives of faithful obedience to God's commands or to turn away from them in various kinds of rebellion. Before turning to the central text of the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke, I want to look at the Old Testament reading and the epistle, each of which provide us with exhortations to be faithful in our earthly lives, albeit in different sorts of ways. In the Old Testament text from Deuteronomy 30, we see Moses giving his sort of commencement address to the people of Israel as they stand on the brink of entering the land of rest that God had promised to them. After decades of wandering pointlessly in the desert on a steady diet of bread and game birds, their nomadic life might finally come to an end. Immediately prior to where this morning's text starts, Moses tells the people that if they obey God with all their heart and with all their soul, then the Lord will bless them, which is reiterated in the text that you heard read. God will be faithful, and even if exile befall them, God will keep up God's end of the covenant relationship in fulfillment to the promises made to Abraham back in Genesis. Now, reading these texts from our vantage point, having witnessed the history of Israel's wandering and knowing what comes after Deuteronomy in God's people's constant cycle of decline and eventual exile, 
These commands seem nearly unattainable. The people of Israel are not the kind of people who love God with their whole hearts. This was precisely the reason for the long delay of entering the land. Likewise, we are not the kind of people who love God with our whole hearts, which is why after we recite the law and our liturgy, we immediately say, Lord, have mercy. And so Moses' commands seem to be out of step with the identity of the people of Israel. If you're the sort of person who constantly desires to eat donuts and burgers instead of kale and beets, then having someone tell you to eat kale and beets or more, to desire to eat kale or beets, amounts to something of an impossible order. Our desires aren't like light switches that can be turned on and off, this way or that way on a whim. To the contrary, they are shaped by the complex nexus of our social and cultural contexts, our habitual practices, and our beliefs, most of which lie outside of our control. But this makes Moses' words from our text all the more surprising. He says, Surely this commandment, that is the commandment to love God with all one's being, that I am commanding to you is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so that we may hear and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the other side of the sea for us and get it for us that we may hear it and observe it? No, Moses says, the word is very near to you. It is in your heart and your mouth for you to observe. Now, while there is some debate on what Moses is referencing here, it's difficult not to see the going up to heaven as a reference to the giving of the law to Moses at Sinai, and the crossing the sea as a reference to the Exodus when Israel passed through the Red Sea on dry land. Keeping the commandments of God, Moses says, fulfilling the essence of the entire law does not take a mighty, extraordinary, and miraculous act of God, for the word of the law is near in your mouth and on your heart. But this isn't quite the whole story. The reason that the law is near to Israel in their mouths and written on their hearts is because of a different sort of act of God, namely the giving of the Spirit, who creates hearts of flesh out of hearts of stone, who gives desire where desire is not. Earlier in verse 6 of the chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, Moses says that God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants so that you will love your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. This is the same language used in Jeremiah 31 to speak of the new covenant, and it is the anticipation of the Spirit poured out on all flesh in Acts chapter 2. Now, whereas Moses' instructions to Israel were a command that would require a radical transformation to follow, a circumcision of the heart, they had to become a new sort of people in order to obey the command. In Paul's exhortation to the church at Colossae, we see instructions for the people to keep doing the things that they were already doing and to not fall away to sin. The people at this church exercised faith in Christ and love for the saints. And having followed the example of Epaphras, they were bearing fruit and growing. Here we see a people on the other side of transformation. Unless we think that their actions were just the result of following the same sort of conditional that Israel was unable to follow, Paul makes it clear that the church at Colossae had already been, been transformed by some act of God to enable them to live the kind of lives they were already living. Paul says that God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now to the Good Samaritan, the parable in our gospel text for this morning. 
It's a familiar story, no doubt, and yet in a world where nationalism is on the rise, where racially and ethnically driven fears of globalization motivate us to erect walls, to tighten our borders, and to send persons to detention camps, it's difficult to talk about this passage to understate it. And in fact, where we live in a world where it's difficult to disconnect any individual act or any individual point from political calculus by which it's motivated, the parable of the Good Samaritan serves challenging to all of us. Nonetheless, I think this parable helps to see the sort of transformation that's required to enable us to love God and to love our neighbors. Like in many of the parables, the interaction here begins with someone questioning Jesus about a fine point of doctrine in the law. Here, a lawyer asks Jesus a fairly simple and straightforward question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In typical fashion, Jesus doesn't spoon feed the man the answer. Instead, he asks the man what the scriptures this man undoubtedly know have to say on the matter. The man replies with the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And that settles it. If you do this, Jesus says, you shall have life. Notice Jesus doesn't here tell him, do these things and you'll go to heaven. A point I'll come back to in just a moment. At this point, either the lawyer recognizes he, like all of us, does a really crappy job of loving his neighbor most of the time, or he at least wants to save face and reduce Jesus' status in the public opinion by making him say something that's contrary to popular ideas. Who counts as my neighbor, the lawyer wants to know. And here Jesus tells a story. An unnamed man, and this is the only element of the story whose identification is absent, is the victim of a brutal assault and robbery. He's left for dead on the side of the road, and he's passed by two persons who might be expected to offer help, a priest and a Levite, both of whom are of the religious order. It is not until an outsider, a Samaritan, who would be considered an unclean heretic by the religious order of the Jews, passed the man that, was, that help was offered. The Samaritan was moved with pity and made sure the victim was cared for in excess of what justice demanded. The Samaritan was the true neighbor for he showed mercy to the victim. And so Jesus responds to the lawyer's question about the boxes that he needs to check off in order to get to heaven by asking him about his identity in this world. What kind of person are you? Who do you love? The bounds of neighborliness are non-existent. Neither distance, nor racial, ethnic, or sexual identity, nor beliefs are relevant to qualify one as a neighbor. Soren Kierkegaard, in his Works of Love, says, if there are only two people, the other person is the neighbor. If there are millions, every one of these is the neighbor. Neighbors are just other human persons, and perhaps animals, but that's an argument for another day, who are objects of divine love and subjects in their own right. Here then we have Jesus showing what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself does not mean to love your neighbor as some instrumental means to the satisfaction of a personal desire, to love another so that you might feel good about your actions, so that you can look good in the eyes of your critics, or so that you can achieve some good thing, such as eternal life in the lawyer's case, abrogates love entirely. 
For to love in this way trivializes the value of the object of the love that is given. And so here the contrast becomes clear. The lawyer treats neighbors as objects, means to some end, and so does not love at all. The Samaritan treats the neighbor as a subject worthy of love and as intrinsically valuable because because of the kind of thing that it is. The lawyer is motivated by his self-interest and love so motivated is not love at all. It's hard to miss what I think is the intention of the inclusion of Colossians 1 alongside of the Good Samaritan parable in today's lectionary. The Apostle Paul tells us that God is our Redeemer. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so, yes, we are the victim on the side of the road, left for dead, only to be cared for and made well by the love of Christ. But it doesn't end there. We ought to be sure we don't miss that God in the person of Christ became human like us, such that Jesus can identify himself as the victim on the side of the road, in the hospital or in prison. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so we love God to the extent that we love others, even, or perhaps especially, those we are disinclined to call our neighbors. Now, it's worth noting that, in conclusion, the verse cited in Luke 10, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reads, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But just a few verses later in Leviticus 19 comes another similar command, which might actually fit better with the story as Jesus tells it. Here's what Leviticus 19.34 says. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Israel, excuse me, the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, while we might single out any number of marginalized groups or people today who have gifts to offer to the church in different ways, and who are in need of neighborly love and support. Women seeking ordination to the priesthood comes to mind as especially pressing in our own context. The group of people this text singles out are those who do not live near us, but who are, for various reasons, traveling to and through our land, immigrants, refugees, and migrant workers. These people, friends, despite what any political party might say to the contrary, are our neighbors. Whether they are children, women, men, persons here illegally or legally, they are fellow human beings who are worthy of love, and more, to whom we are obligated to exercise neighborliness by respecting their dignity, caring for them, and ensuring their health and well-being. They deserve humane treatment, proper care, and due process of law. Yet even today, ICE teams are set to raid cities around the country, including Chicago, in order to gather up and deport thousands of undocumented immigrants who did as little as missed a court date about which they weren't properly informed. Policy matters aside, and I recognize that policy matters really matter, it's hard to imagine Jesus highlighting such activity as an admirable instance of neighborliness. I've gone too long, and I want to close finally with our collect for today, which says, O God, the protector of all who trust in you, without whom nothing is strong, nothing is holy, 
Increase and multiply upon us your mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may so pass through things temporal that we lose not our hold on things eternal. One way to read the collect is to see it as a petition for God to help us keep proper sight of our future eternal destinies as we live in the world. But I think the better way to read it is to see it as a plea for God to enable us, by God's own mercy, to be better able to see the things that are of eternal importance here in time and space as we live our lives here on earth. Love of neighbor is one such thing, and may we recognize it as such. Amen.